0: There are 15 dead Britons for every one living. Over half a billion souls. Interred in crypts, cemeteries and churches. From ancient tombs to graveyards, Britain's burial grounds tell a lively and deathly history. My name is Mark Zakian and I'm joined by my blue badge colleague Anthony Robbins, also known as Mr Londoner. And we are investigating death and burial from sin-eaters to people literally dancing on graves, from time machine tombs to a necropolis railway. Join us as we dig up stories about graveyards and hear some tales to lift your spirits. In 1490, Lancashire baker Jonah Jones died. Three days later, at his funeral, it cost four pounds to feed the mourners. That's two thousand five hundred pounds in today's money. There were bell ringers at one pound and ten shillings, more than a shilling a ding. The more dings, the quicker you got to heaven. The wax candles cost one and six, plus two pounds for the wine and four pounds for the priest's oil. Priests were forbidden to charge for funerals, but made very good money on the sundries. A graveyard burial cost eight shillings a spot, but John paid two pounds for a top location inside the church, next to the altar. And his monument, eight pounds for a brass and marble figure. All this added up to a year's income for the average medieval citizen. But for John, his money was well spent. A good funeral protected your soul from the devil. And John even made sure that there were musical mourners at that funeral. Known as placebos, from the Latin to please. They would turn up and sing a prayer at your funeral in exchange for a free meal helping speed you through purgatory into heaven. And John was buried with his feet facing east, towards sunrise, where God shines his light on the world. And on the south side of the church. Lucifer stalks the dark and literally sinister north side, where the outcasts and murderers and criminals were interred. And John did not want to lie down and spend eternity with thieves and sinners. The church's monopoly on burial rights meant anybody who died in a remote parish had to be brought to the Mother Church. Often involving journeys over miles of hilly countryside. And to make this easier, churches built corpse roads. And there are still traces of these across Britain. Public paths with names such as Church Way or Kirkway Field, these were once funeral roads. The Lake District has an old corpse road leading from Swindale to the beautiful Shap Abbey. The last body was taken down this track in 1736. And the road from Rydal to Ambleside still has its own coffin stone, where the body was placed while tired pallbearers rested. While the Lichway is a track around Devil's Tor on Dartmoor. The deceased from remote moorland homesteads were taken here along this path to Lidford Church. And there are legends of phantom funeral processions stalking this path at night. Lich is a Saxon medieval word for corpse. At the end of the Lichway, outside the church, was a lich gate. A wooden porch-like structure with seating. Before mortuaries, bodies were placed on a bier and kept under the church lich gate. Safeguarded against body snatchers until the funeral service a day or two later. When someone died in medieval times, the family would place bread on the body and pay for a sin-eater. A task usually undertaken by beggars or the poor who would eat and drink over the corpse. Literally consuming the sins of the dead. Especially people who had been unable to confess their sins before death. The last recorded sin-eater was a Shropshire farmer called Richard Munslow who continued the tradition until his death in 1906.
1: I have heard reports that these single women were forbidden the rights of the church so long as they continued that sinful life and were excluded from Christian burial. And therefore, there was a plot of ground called the single woman's churchyard appointed for them, far from the parish
0: church. The words of historian John Stowe, describing the Crossbones graveyard in 1598. Hidden down a back street south of the River Thames is an unconsecrated resting place for hundreds of prostitutes who lived worked and died in this libertine corner of London. 900 years ago the bishops of Winchester governed the area from their great medieval palace and estate along the south side of the Thames and in 1161 the king set up 39 rules for the bankside brothels known as stews including this edict that a woman that lives by her body shall have free licence and liberty to come and go as she please without interruption. Controlled by the bishops, the prostitutes were nicknamed Winchester geese, perhaps after their custom of bearing their breasts to entice punters. The bishops licensed and taxed the prostitutes and no doubt returned these monies to them by using their services. The working woman's life was hard and venereal disease was rife. The phrase, bitten by a Winchester goose, was slang for catching syphilis. In the 15th century, Southwark banished women, suffering from the burning sickness, probably a reference to gonorrhea. Disease and poverty made the prostitutes' lives shorter than average. And in death, they were excluded from burial in the parish churches. And so were interred in the unconsecrated crossbones single woman's graveyard. By the dawn of the Victorian era, Southwark was one of the worst slums in London, dense with crime and cholera. And the crossbones was repurposed as a pauper's graveyard. A favourite hunting ground for the body snatchers, who unearthed corpses to sell for anatomy classes at Southwark's Guy's Hospital. A letter from the parish authorities had noted that the grounds was...
1: So very full of coffins that it is necessary to bury them within two feet of the surface. And that... The effluvium is so very offensive that we fear that the consequences may be very injurious to the surrounding neighbourhood.
0: Many believed that the population of foul-smelling corpses was responsible for London's cholera epidemic. And the cemetery offended public health and decency and was closed in 1853. Forgotten about until the 1900s when London Underground needed to build an electricity substation. Museum of London archaeologists excavated a small portion of the cemetery and removed 148 skeletons, just 1% of all the bodies packed beneath the ground. One of the skeletons was a 19-year-old girl, identified as Elizabeth Mitchell, who entered St. Thomas's Charity Hospital in 1851 as a patient in the fouled ward. 10 days later, she died. Poor little Elizabeth was 4 foot 9 tall her bones riddled with syphilis infection and her face disfigured with pox sores, probably as a result of being a young prostitute. 99% of the bodies in the crossbones remain underground. Their secrets probably buried for generations more. In recent years, locals and Londoners have joined together to honour these nameless deceased. Once a month, they gather to remember the outcast dead writing the names of lost ones on ribbons and mementos and displaying them for all to see in 1844 a musical evening was promoted in the strand enon chapel dancing on the dead no lady or gentleman admitted unless wearing shoes and stockings admission threepence for the gravest show on earth Victorians were literally gallivanting on the graves of some 12,000 perished souls. The story of the Deathly Disco started when the chapel opened just off London Strand in 1823. And the Reverend Howes began offering burials for a low fee of just 15 shillings. At this time, a burial in the nearby Church of St Clement Danes cost £1.17 and tuppence. And in Victorian England, Poor families were often forced to keep their dead at home until they'd saved enough for a burial. So Enon's cut-price burials were a bargain and a lifeline for the poor. They made it cheap, cramming the coffins into a 60 by 40 foot pit under the chapel. With more than 20 interments every week. Filling them over with quicklime to speed up decomposition and create new space. But
1: all was not well in this mortuary bargain basement.
0: One witness reporting
1: The vault housed an open sewer carrying the bodies into the Thames and that People praying in the church regularly experienced fainting and
0: sickness due to the fumes. But all went well for Reverend Howes for a number of years. Despite worshippers retching into their handkerchiefs and falling unconscious at the noxious stink. In 1839 surgeon and public health campaigner George Graveyard Walker discovered the ghoulish goings-on at Enon
1: Chapel. The lower part is used as a burying place and is crowded to the top of the ceiling with dead. Vast numbers of bodies have been placed in pits, covered only with a few inches of earth. Long, narrow, black flies crawl out of many of the coffins. Children attending Sunday school saw vast numbers of these body bugs flying during the summer months, the airs above the chapel are filled with the pestiferous exhalations of the dead.
0: Chapel neighbours noted that meat, if left out, would putrefy within an hour or two. One resident finding a disembodied skull rolling down the street. Reverend Howes managed to cram so many corpses into the limited space by discarding the coffins, which his wife used for firewood. When Howes died, in 1842, Enon Chapel was closed. The new tenant, Mr Fitzpatrick, took up residence in 1844. Despite the quantity of human bones buried under his kitchen floor, he was not put off. And simply reburied them in the chapel. Later tenants, a sect of teetotalers, went one better. Reopening Enon Chapel for... Wodgewills, waltzes and country dances, gallopades and reels danced over the masses of mortality in the cellar beneath. In 1848, George Graveyard Walker purchased the chapel with the promise that he would give the inhabitants of the vault a decent burial at his own expense at Norwood Cemetery. This philanthropic gesture, however, was marred by Walker's morbid sense of theatre. Rather than discreetly disinterring the bodies and having them respectfully removed, he opened the event to the public. To drum up business, he had attendants strolling up and down the street holding skulls. Upwards of 6,000 people came to view the mortal mountain of bones unearthed by Walker. Walker defended his approach by emphasising that the spectacle was educational. The ironic highlight of Graveyard Walker's enon show was the shriveled face of the long-dead proprietor, Reverend Howes, who had been buried in his own chapel. His stark, stiff and shriveled corpse identified by a screw foot. A case of poetic justice, the greedy speculator responsible for the desecration of the dead had himself become part of the gruesome spectacle. It's 1874. A train pulls out of London, heading for Brookwood in Surrey. On the passenger ticket is written, Coffee. And definitively, in one way, the final railway journey that began here at Waterloo. From a special station run by the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company. This was the answer to the ban on burials in central London and the prohibitive cost of funerals it was crippling the capital. The London Daily News wrote, Under any circumstances, a funeral is an expensive affair. The consequence of the removal of the city cemeteries inflicts a purdah on the ordinary man that he finds difficult to bear. This is felt so acutely that it is not uncommon to see a coffin placed on top of a cab and conveyed to its destination. We look with interest to a company that promises to diminish the cost of funerals in general and to offer a means by which the tedium of following a corpse to the grave may be avoided. And so the necropolis company proposed. A city for the dead at the utmost possible economy. Not everyone was in agreement. The Bishop of London feud
1: the speed and noise associated with railway travel would be an affront to the burial process.
0: And the Earl of Shaftesbury claimed that to cover expenses they would have to inter 40,000 corpses a year. Claiming that because they'd agreed to bury London's paupers, hundreds of bodies would pile up in the arches under the railway. But objections were brushed aside. At its peak The train carried more than 2,000 bodies a year. Mourners could leave with their dearly departed at 11.40am, attend the burial, have a funeral party at the cemetery station complete with home cooked ham sandwiches and fairy cakes, and then take the same train back to London by 3.30pm. There were five classes of funeral first class cost 21 pounds and 14 shillings while well, the fifth class or walking funeral was 3 pounds and 9 shillings with tickets for four mourners included the funeral railways mega cemetery at brookwood was the largest in the world with a branch line arriving chugging through the graveyard to the two chapel stations one for the church of england and one for everyone else each chapel station had its own bar and on one occasion an engine driver was too drunk to drive back to Waterloo. The first train departed in 1854, stillborn twins, born into poverty, the burial paid for by the parish. A decade later, the Great Northern Cemetery Company opened a rival funeral train at King's Cross, promising funerals for the London's poor. It was located at Belle Isle, which was home to navvies, cabmen and porters. The station had a mortuary chapel where bodies were stored while the family got money together for the funeral. Its cemetery was in Colney Hatch in Barnet. Offering 98 acres of grace for Anglicans and 44 for Nonconformists. One of its earliest funerals was for the Grand Master of Odd Fellows with 800 people travelling on 24 carriages. The railway cemetery companies were very competitive fighting for contracts to exhume London's overcrowded graveyards and rebury their bodies at their own cemeteries. Offering funeral insurance and futuristic biodegradable coffins. They kept hundreds of emergency caskets, often used if somebody died in a hotel, removing the body late at night to avoid worrying the guests. And they built station lifts that could raise a dozen caskets in one go up onto the platform and trains that would transport up to 25 coffins. The Necropolis Company buildings can still be seen on Westminster Bridge Road. Celebrated for their waiting rooms, from where three funerals at a time were loaded onto the train in complete privacy, the railway magazine said of the station, Here, the quiet and subdued puffing of the engine seems almost sympathetic with the sorrow of its living crate. One is reminded of the last great station on the railroad of life. The final platform of the completion of this world's journey. Railway funerals ran for 87 years until the last metropolis train departed Waterloo in 1941 and steam trains puffed no more. Victorian Britain was in an almost permanent state of in 1850, the average life expectancy was 41. Only two out of 10 babies reached their second birthday and parents expected to bury at least one child. The Victorians kept a precise mourning etiquette. Curtains were drawn. Clocks stopped at the time of death. Mirrors draped or turned to the wall. A wreath tied with black ribbons was hung on the front door to alert neighbors. The length of mourning was absolute. Deep mourning for two years, followed by a period of half mourning, with strict codes of dress. For a widow, full black must be worn, no jewellery and a veil to conceal crying. When a husband died, it would take four years to move through the three stages of mourning. People clung to mementos of lost ones, such as a lock of hair carried in a cameo, even a post-mortem family photo with the deceased macabre to the modern eyes, but in the Victorian era there were more photos taken of the dead than the living. The body was posed to look as if it was still alive, with eyes open, or closed as if the body was sleeping. In those days it took many minutes to expose a photo. Meaning you had to sit perfectly still for up to a quarter of an hour to stop the final image from looking blurry. Not a problem for the corpse. Queen Victoria had a sculpture made of her late husband. Prince Albert when he died in 1861 she insisted on the statue featuring in every family portrait. Victorians did not like public displays of emotion the motto for the day being keep calm carry the coffin but they did want a good crowd for the send-off and so would employ professional mourners known as mutes typically impoverished men who are given a nice suit and paid to show up at a funeral look solemn and sad but say nothing By the mid-1800s, no self-respecting Victorian would be buried without mutes in attendance. Charles Dickens poked fun at this practice in his novel Oliver Twist. When the undertaker, Mr Sowerberry, suggested that orphan Oliver could become a funeral mute.
1: I don't mean a regular mute to attend grown-up people, but only for children's practice. It would be very new to have a mute in proportion. It would have a superb effect
0: with newspapers claiming that the misery mutes were drunkards who took their payments straight to the pub. By the turn of the century, the mutes were muted. Victorian anxiety around death continued once the body was in the ground. Many graves were built with a hollow stone column running down the coffin. At the top was a bell tower. To be rung if you'd been buried alive. And these coffin alarms continued well into the 20th century. With electric alarms fitted to coffins maybe future coffins will come with a wireless panic button, paid for in cryptocurrency. In medieval times, people were often buried without coffins, the bodies left to decompose for a few years. After which, graves were opened and the bones removed and placed in a charnel house. On London's Fleet Street, at St Bride's Church, is a charnel boneyard. Containing an estimated 7,000 human remains. Where some skulls were arranged in lines and the rest in a macabre-looking pile laid out in a checkerboard pattern. The charnel house was an attempt to cope with the rapid increase in London's population. During the Industrial Revolution, more people died in cities than were born, and as the burial grounds filled up, grave diggers would pile coffins one on top of the other in a desperate attempt to create more space. This overcrowding meant that relatively fresh graves were smashed and desecrated when new ones were dug. So the government outlawed burials in the overcrowded parish churches. And this led to some bizarre proposals. Architect Thomas Wilson designed a giant mortuary pyramid. Rising up 94 storeys, the Metropolitan Sepulchre would cover an area of 10 football pitches. Filled with thousands of individual vaults for 5 million deceased Londoners. At a rate of £50 per vault, with 40,000 burials a year, the Pyramid General Cemetery Company would have made £10 million for its owners. Selling them cheap and literally... High. Had Wilson succeeded, the giant pyramid topped with an obelisk and four times the height of St Paul's would have been London's most notable landmark. The dead centre of the capital. In the end, the authorities decided on a more conventional approach. Passing an act establishing cemeteries for the internment of the dead. And the suburban cemetery was born. And a series of Victorian burial grounds were created all around London. Known as the Magnificent Seven, they're a combination of national monuments, listed buildings, urban parks, wildlife sanctuaries and peaceful retreats. We're visiting Highgate Cemetery. One of the Magnificent Seven, it opened in 1839. Perched on a hill above the smoky Victorian city, Highgate quickly became a fashionable place for burials. Among the 170,000 graves are world-famous writers, artists and industrialists. The tomb of Karl Marx is a radical's pilgrimage. According to some, it's just another communist plot. Also buried here are scientist Michael Faraday and the fantasy novelist Douglas Adams, whose gravestone is marked with the number 42. As well as Charles Croft, a dog show fame. There are some strange stories here. Lizzie Siddle was a supermodel of Victorian England. Painted by many of the great artists of her time. But she overdosed on laudanum in 1862. Her grieving husband, painter Dante Gabriel Rossetti, placed his poetry manuscript in his wife's coffin. And seven years later, when Rossetti's artistic and literary reputation had waned, perhaps due to his increasing addiction to whiskey, this strange story an even stranger twist. Rossetti's agent wanted to publish the poems, so they arranged for her coffin to be exhumed. Siddle's body was perfectly preserved, her beauty intact, her growing coppery hair filling the coffin. The manuscript was retrieved, although a worm had burrowed through the book. By the end of World War II, Highgate was overgrown, unattended and in serious disrepair. In the 1970s, the cemetery had become a popular location for horror movie studio, Hammer. And stories of grave robbing, desecration and vampires in Highgate began appearing in the news. With people claiming to see creatures flying over the graves. Vampire hunters regularly converged on the graveyard in the dead of night. Tombs were broken open and bodies were mutilated with wooden stakes driven into their chests. Stolen corpses started turning up in strange places, upsetting the locals. One discovered a headless body propped up behind the steering wheel of his car. The Highgate vampire sensation culminated in 1970 with two magicians, Farrant and Manchester, claiming that each would be the first to find and kill the supposed vampire. Manchester announced an official vampire hunt. And on Friday the 13th, a mob of hunters from all over London swarmed over the gates and walls into the locked cemetery, despite police efforts to control them. Farrant was arrested, holding a crucifix and a wooden stake, and was sent to jail. Today, a team of dedicated volunteers have rescued Highgate from the decay of the 1970s, part financed by the limited number of burial plots which currently go for £18,325. That's £16,475 for a plot. And £1,850 for the digging. The novelist George Eliot, who's buried in Highgate, described one of her characters as... A
1: man who would drive a hard bargain with his undertaker.
0: Suitable advice for anyone wanting to be buried in Highgate today. Recent burials include music icon George Michael... And former Soviet intelligence officer, Alexander Litvinenko, who defected to Britain and was murdered with polonium by Russian agents. Buried in a lead-lined casket to stop radiation from leaking out. Brompton Cemetery is another of London's magnificent seven. With tree-lined avenues, classical colonnades and underground catacombs. Alongside hundreds of Victorian tombs are the graves of several First Nations American performers who died while in London as part of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Beatrix Potter, who lived nearby, took the names of some of her characters from tombstones in the cemetery. Near us are graves marked Mr. Nutkins, Mr. Brooke, Mr. Todd, Jeremiah Fisher and even a Peter Rabbit – names of long dead people who are now immortalised forever. One of the most mysterious graves belongs to Hannah Courtois. An unwed mother of three daughters, Courtois inherited a wealthy merchant's estate. Many say that she was his lover. Either way, she was rich and set up as a socialite obsessed with the new Victorian fad of Egyptology. She died in 1849. Her elaborate tomb, constructed by Joseph Bonamy the Egyptologist architect who claimed to discover scientific secrets while decoding hieroglyphs on Egyptian tombs. But his giant Brompton tomb has no name inscribed on it. The mystery deepened when the key to the mini mausoleum was lost, leading people to believe that the monument is a working time machine with its wheel-like motifs on the door which some claim operate the time machine. So Hannah Courtois may be zipping through time and space today, having cheated ageing and death, and just occasionally returning to her Brompton Cemetery home. A report by Reuters in 1998 repeated claims about a working time machine. And in 2011, a rumour started that the tomb is actually a teleportation passageway. Created to connect the Courtois Mausoleum to similar tombs with London's other great Victorian graveyards. In fact, With all the Magnificent Seven. The cemetery is haunted. Not surprising, as there are 205,000 dead people here. Its celebrity ghost is Victorian actor William Terrace. A successful performer appearing in Victorian melodramas. In 1897, the unfortunate Terrace was entering the stage door at London's Adelphi Theatre when he was stabbed three times. His killer was out-of-work actor Richard Archer Prince, An alcoholic whom Terrace had tried to help. Prince, who held a grudge against Terrace for years, was declared insane and sent to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. Terrace is reputed to haunt the cemetery, as well as Covent Garden Underground and the entrance to the Adelphi. He is one busy ghost. This is the oldest of the magnificent seven. Kensal Green Cemetery. Immortalised by poet G.K. Chesterton who wrote For there is good news yet to hear And fine things to be seen Before we go to paradise By way of Kensal Green This was the favoured resting place for great Victorians Including Charles Babbage Father of the modern computer Pioneering engineer and railway builder Isambard Kingdom Brunel And writers Wilkie Collins and Anthony Trollope And it's still a busy working cemetery In 2016 an 86 foot long half circle of Corinthian columns appeared in the cemetery with a carefully tended garden inside featuring a life-size statue of a football crazy boy who died shortly after his 11th birthday. A 6x2 standard burial plot at Kensal Green costs a hefty £22,000 £1,375 per square foot. Plus 1550 for the excavation by Mechanical Digger. The Garden, as it's officially known, is at least 3,000 square feet. So the plot alone is worth around £4 million. The memorial is made with 350 tonnes of granite, 150 tonnes of steel and 200 tonnes of concrete. Decorated with angels holding torches, books and flowers probably the most expensive grave ever constructed in Britain. In contrast, a modest metal plaque appeared at Kensal Green in 2013. Commemorating an 80s rock star some 22 years after he passed away. Freddie Mercury was cremated at Kensal Green in 1991. What happened to his ashes remained a secret. Until the plaque arrived, presumably marking those ashes. Then, within weeks, As mysteriously as it had arrived, the plaque disappeared. A small memorial for a giant of rock and a man worth hundreds of millions of pounds. But as the cliche goes, you can't take it with you. Even the greatest monuments fade and crumble. And as Freddie sang, who wants to live forever?
1: This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was produced by Mark Zakian and featured Anthony Robbins, also known as Mr. Londoner. The music was by Scott Buckley, scottbuckley.com.au. To hear more of our podcasts, follow us at www.storiesofbritain.com.